You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. Welcome to Music Biz 101 and More with Dr. Esteban Marconi. And I'm your professor, David Kirk Philp. And we're so happy. No, you're Dr. Philp. I'm Dr. We were on a call recently. And I'm, I'm now with Dr. Philp. Right. Dr. Philp and Dr. Esteban Marconi. I was just something. I don't know what I was in that call. Yes. Should we give thanks? I guess we ought to. Let us give thanks. We will give thanks to. The folks at Van Dyne, Bruno, Ink and White Hat Management with artists like Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, St. Vincent, Kiss, Zach Brown, and Timo Likes Music. There's only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to vb-cpa.com when you are ready. And we also want to give thanks to Christine. Oi. They, a wealth manager at the Forefront Group. Christine has helped many professionals at William Patterson, at other universities, at other businesses, manage their investments, plan out for the retirement when you and just you are thinking of building a bridge to your financial future. Think about the Forefront Group and go to Christine at Forefront.com. Leave the last oil off for savings. As all of us consistently do. We remind everyone, Managing Your Band 7th Edition is out, ready for you, waiting. And we are going to have a guest today. His name is Rusty Harmon. But Rusty runs a company. He's co-founder of Veer which is a new uh, label services company. And we'll chat with Rusty and it's going to be great. And here he comes right now. Dr. Esteban, why don't you begin with the third degree of Rusty Harmon? Of course, sounds good. So from all the things that I've read, it says that your first act to manage was Hootie and the Blowfish. And what state were they in when you took over? They were drunk. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> what state were they in? Well, they were, my daughter uh, goes to University of South Carolina. So. <laughs> so I went to NC State University and I was going to school there and I was uh, actually working for a college radio station called WKNC. And I was interning for a guy named Dick Hodgen, Dick was a University of South Carolina graduate. And Dick, this was back in the mid eighties. And uh, Dick was a, um, a producer. You gotta, you gotta remember this is all before the internet and, and uh, CDs and all that. So Dick was a producer and a manager and he, he was the ultimate DIY king. He did everything. He booked bands himself. He, he uh, road managed bands himself. He did taxes for the bands. He sent out concert calendars with, with uh, email, I'm sorry, with ad- addresses that were, that were handwritten on Kinko's printed ca- calendars. He did everything. And um, one of the things that he let me do for him was he would get a box of cassettes every week um, from, 
from artists that wanted him to produce their demo. He, he had a pretty good business going. He was charging, you know, two to $3,000 for a four or five song demo uh, and recording in a really nice studio called Jag Studios in Raleigh, North Carolina. And um, so he'd give me a box of cassettes to go listen to on the weekends. And, and I, um, I got this one cassette one, one weekend from this band from Columbia, South Carolina. And uh, what, what I liked about it as much as the music was the letter that they wrote and the letter that came with the cassette said, um, Hey, for the first time in our career, we did not drink a single drop of alcohol during the show because we wanted to stay sober so that when everybody left, we could run these songs through the board, um, and send this music to you for you to record to, for you to listen to. So in hopes of you recording our demo. So, uh, we recorded this at three in the morning at Green Street in Columbia, South Carolina. And um, so I was really intrigued by that. And I listened to it. It's, the band was Hootie and the Blowfish. And um, yeah, so I, I, uh, I set up that recording session for Dick. They came into town. Uh, so they came from the University of South Carolina to, to, to Raleigh and recorded their first demo that Dick Hodgen produced. And I was the intern. Um, and I also was having to be DJing at nightclubs around the area. So when they would, uh, when they would get through recording, we would go out to the bars where I DJed and we'd hang out and drink beer all night and, and uh, go party back at my house for a little bit. And then they'd get up at noon and do it all over again the next day. And we did that for a week and we got to be thick as thieves and I became their manager. <laughs> so they didn't have a representation at the time. No. And, and it really, it's, it's kind of a great story because I, I still, I, I think this, this story is important for a lot of people that are thinking about either managing or getting involved in the business in some capacity. It, it really, uh, it, th this is a story that continues to give to people um, the, the idea of what it takes to, to be persistent and, and stick to it. And, and, I, and that is they, um, they, they did not have representation and they, they actually wanted Dick to be their manager because Dick had, I don't know if you know these names or not, but there were bands called the Flat Duo Jets that was signed to Doggone Records. Doggone Records was run by Jefferson Holt. Jefferson was REM's first manager. Um, they were, he had a band called the Accelerators that were signed to Profile Records. Uh, so these were, these were a handful of bands that he worked with at the time. And um, so they wanted Dick to manage them and Dick, Dick just didn't have time to do it. And I was interning for Dick and I, I had been, I had been doing all these things. So we were in a small little office of one desk and we answered the phone and hi, is Dick Hodgen available? Hold on. Let me check. Put him on hold. Hello, Dick, are you available? I, I look across the de desk and yeah, hold on. He'll be right with you and hand him the phone. Like it was that sort of operation for, and I did that for about a year and a half. And um, I ended up booking some of the bands myself and going out on the road with them and, so when they asked Dick to be their manager, he said, no, I can't do it, but you should talk to my intern, Rusty. He really likes you a lot. And, and so I, they would call me up. Um, I'll tell you what happened. They, uh, I had done a bunch of things for bands over the years. I, I had an interview show on my, at the college radio station, and um, I interviewed all these great bands, Jason and the Scorchers, and I actually interviewed Tom Petty when he came into town one time. And um, Anyway, uh, uh, for all the things I had done for bands, uh, no band had ever thanked me in the credits of a cassette before. And so the Hootie guys actually thanked me in the credits. And so I called them and said, hey, you know, thank you so much for thanking me. And they were like, oh, well, you, you helped us out a lot. We really appreciate it. And I, and I would say, okay, well, so what are you doing now with your, you know, with your, with your demo? Are you shopping it? And they're like, well, what does that mean? And I'd say, well, you got to send it to record labels and, you know, you got your find out the A&R guys and send it to, and they're like, well, you know, we don't know how to do that. And, and I would say, well, who's booking the band now? And they would say, well, you know, just whoever can do it. And I, you know, we, some, sometimes Darius does it. Sometimes Mark does it. And I'm like, no, it's gotta be one voice. You gotta have the, you gotta call people back consistently. And, and the way that they tell the story, they basically got tired of me telling them what to do. And they said, Hey, why don't you be our manager? And um, I was about to graduate from college and so i i started managing them in the summer of 89 and um and i graduated and i moved to columbia south carolina and we basically we all lived together for for four years five years and um yeah so that's how it started 
So at that particular time, were they students at USC? Nope, they had all graduated. They were all about a year or two removed from college. Uh Um, It was, you know, I guess it's so different today because just the whole scene's different. But, um, you know, back then the drinking age was 18. And so you didn't have the, you didn't have the, you know, you you, you guys remember what colleges were like when you could drink at 18 and everybody came and you were freshmen and there were bars everywhere that freshmen were going to and sophomore. So the, the college campuses, the areas around college campuses were, were, if you were in a cool college town that had a cool, you know, vibe around it, uh, it, it, it was, it was built for people to stay there. <laughs> if you, if you were, if you were harboring your inner Will Ferrell from old school, you, you could literally, you could stay around a college campus for five or 10 years after graduating and, and still look like you were a college student and fit in. And that's kind of what the Hootie guys were doing. They, they were playing the, the bars around the five points community of Columbia, yeah. South Carolina, and yeah. they were, arguably the greatest cover band in the history of rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And so they would play all these bars around Columbia and they were, you know, 23, 24 years old. And, and we were, we, we just loved that time period. So um, it felt like, it felt like we were in school, but we, no, we, we had all just, we were all one or two or three years removed from college, but, but still hanging out around that community. It was basically a 10 or 11 your love affair between you and them yeah so um so we got when i first started working with them there were they they had about two or three markets that they could go and tour in it was basically columbia charleston and myrtle beach and i that year that i managed them out of my bedroom in raleigh i ended up getting them up to raleigh durham and chapel hill and then that turned into wilmington and the Outer Banks and Greensboro and Wake Forest and Winston Salem and um, and yeah and then we started expanding the you know between the Carolinas and and it really just started growing and and uh, and from all the time that I had worked with Dick Hodgen as an intern and him booking bands I I I learned from him how to do this myself so I I became their booking agent and I I, I booked them for three years and we turned those three markets into about. I don't know, probably 20 markets where we could do anywhere between 150 and 500 people. Um, and that was basically from Rockville, Maryland, all the way down to Jacksonville, Florida, and, um, and every little college town in between. We just, we, we hit, we hit all the little college areas and, um, and, and that, that just, that just, it blew up and we started making some money and we started selling some CD, we, CDs came out. We ended up putting out our own CD called Coochie Pop that um, we sold about 50,000 copies of this CD back when an independent unsigned band selling 50,000 copies was just completely unheard of. Um, we did distribution ourselves. We did a little bit of radio promotion ourselves. We I did publicity myself. So we really did everything on our own. Um, funny story, I all the record stores around, around NC state, it was school kids records and the record bar were the two big uh, record stores there then. And, um, I, they, they would only take, uh, CDs from me on consignment. So I would, I would do like, I would give them five CDs and then, and they would not get any more until, until they sold those five. So I would, I would give them five CDs and I would give money to my friends and they would they would go and, and buy the CDs and they'd call and they'd call me up and say, man, we can't keep these CDs on the shelves like you. <laughs> we, we, we need to get more CDs from you guys. So it, that was kind of it was funny. But it, after a while, I got to where it wasn't me buying them anymore. It started being real other other people. And um, so anyway, we sold about 50,000 copies in the Carolinas. And um, there was a there was a guy at Atlantic Records in L.A., and um, they had a they had a department. They they had an intern at um, at, at Atlantic, and then what they did again back before streaming and all that stuff they they would uh, they would monitor record sales in markets for records that weren't on a major label. That, that's what the intern did. And in North and South Carolina, there was a chain called Manifest Records that was uh, based in South in Charleston, but um, they were all through South uh, South Carolina. And in South Carolina, the, the big records the, at the time were 
U2 Zeropa, Pearl Jam 10, and the Sleepless in Seattle soundtrack. Those were like the top three Billboard records. And Hootie was outselling all of those records in the Carolinas uh, during that time period. So we um, we got a call from the Atlantic Records rep and said, hey, what's going on here? It seems like something's happening. And uh, the A&R guy named Tim Summer, he came to see us play a show in Charleston. And uh, he saw us play. At, I want to say the bar was called Miskins. And it probably held, I don't know, 800 people or something. And it was the middle of the summer. And it was hot. And, um, we had, if it held 800, there were, there were 1200 people there and we probably did $5,000 worth of merchandise that night. And, and I jumped over the merch table to help sell t-shirts because the, the road manager couldn't keep up with it. And, and Tim was just sitting back watching all this, you know, all these girls singing all the songs and, and the merchandise going like crazy. And, and then a week later we got an offer from Atlantic records. So yeah, that, that became, that was. At that time, it certainly was a love affair. I mean, it was it was uh, there was just a lot of great things happening. That was in '93, mm-hmm. and then we got offered the record deal around October of '93. Put out the first record in we went to LA to record in the spring of '94, and put out that first record in um, it was July 5th, 1994. We put out Cracked Review, and um, I can tell you it it. it the, at that time, what we were, what we were, what we were con- most concerned about was being dropped by Atlantic Records because there we had friends on the label like the, the Blues Traveler, uh, Blues Travelers, or they had sold seven hundred thousand records and they got dropped. Uh, the Lemonheads, who were on Atlantic Records at the time, they got dropped. And like these iconic bands that we love, Tori Amos got dropped, and right. we so we were just scared to death that we weren't gonna, we weren't going to make it to the next record. And we had a single out called Hold My Hand. And um, it was, it was, it never really was a major top 40 song or anything, but it was probably in the, in the fifties or sixties on the, on the pop charts. And, um, and so the record came out July 5th and from July until November, we sold about 500,000 records, which was really good. I mean, we, we were certified gold acts. Um, based on just on our sales in the Carolinas, really. Um, but then uh, David Letterman heard the band on WNEW in New York, and he asked the band to perform the Friday after Thanksgiving, not not Black Friday, but the fr- the next Friday. He asked us to perform, uh, and and I I said no. So the booker for for David Letterman called me directly and ask if we could play. And I said, no, we couldn't because we had a sold out show that same night at the Thompson theater, uh, which was a 3000 seat theater in Columbia. And you got to understand for all these years, we had played nothing but clubs and this was our first theater and it was sold out. And I was like, man, we're not, we're not going to not play that show. Like, and, and so I said, no. And about, about 15 minutes later, the, the president of the record label called me and said, Rusty, you idiot. What are you doing? I heard you told Letterman no. And I said, well, we got a show that night. And he said, Rusty, the show tapes at 430. Like, we'll we'll send a plane down to get you. We'll fly you to New York. You'll tape the show and then you can fly back and make your show. You never tell David Letterman no. (laughs) And I said, okay. So so we did the show. We flew up, played it, flew back, played our our sold out show. And then so from, from July 5th, to November, end of November, we sold half a million copies from the, the Friday after Thanksgiving until Christmas, we sold a ha- another half a million. And then from January 1st of 95 to January of 96, we sold 12 million records. We, we averaged a million records a month. Wow. Wow. And, um, and it was a life changing career altering thing. That's a great story though. Yeah, and I, you know, I never, I never, I, I don't know what I thought, but I didn't, I wasn't sure even at that time that I was going to have a career in the music industry. I wasn't sure that I, I wasn't, you know, I was whatever, I was 28, 27, 28 years old. I wasn't thinking about long-term stuff. I just knew that I was, I, you know, I used to always say if I could make, at least make my age. So if I was 28 and I made $28,000 a year, that was good. If I was 29 and made 29,000, that was great. And, uh, <laughs> Fortunately, uh, that that worked out pretty well. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, 
we don't want to only stay on duty, but after the uh, 11 years, it was just a parting of the ways or, or yeah, what? Yeah, we, so we put out three records and, and um, the band became a little bit more fragile. You know, it's, it's so different when you're, when you're 25 and broke and living together and you got girlfriends and, and all of a sudden you're 28 and you got money in your checking account and you own multiple houses and you all start moving out and yeah. now you're all married and then you start having kids and things just get different. And um, Darius actually moved to New York. Uh, Mark and Dean moved to Charleston and me and Sony, the drummer, were the only ones left in Columbia. And they just, they kind of just stopped being a band. They were just really fragmented. They quit, quit writing together as much. And um, I, I didn't like living in Columbia. I really wanted to move back to Raleigh. And um, so we just, uh, it wasn't working. We just, we, we weren't, they weren't hanging out. I, I wasn't doing a good job managing them. And um, we just all got together one day and said, Hey, you know, it's time to make a change. And I said, yeah, okay, I quit. So uh, that was in April of 2001. I moved back to Raleigh and basically didn't do anything for a while. And then um, I met this kid named Jason Michael Carroll. Jason was a country singer and he was playing on one of those American Idol spinoff shows in Raleigh uh, on the Fox local Fox network. It was called Gimme the Mic. And I was uh, my buddy Dick Codgen, the, the producer. He was a uh, he was, uh, a, he was a, a celebrity guest on the show, and he, he called me and asked me to watch the show, and I did, and I saw Jason sing, and I called up Jason and said, um, I'm sorry, I called up Dick and said, hey, I need to meet that kid, and he said, no, I can't introduce you to him until after the show. That would be unethical, and, and I said, uh, he'll have a manager by the time that show's over. I, I need to meet him now, and I went to my office the next day, and a kid that was interning for me named Josh Tilton um, said, hey, did you watch the show last night? My buddy won. And I said, do you know Jason? And he said, yeah, I know him. He practices in the warehouse spot next to me. And he was in a band. And, and I said, can you get him here? And he said, yeah. He said, an hour later, Jason was in my office. And I ended up signing him to a management deal. And we took him to Nashville and got a record deal on Arista Records. And um, I made his record with the same producer that produced all the Hootie records. His name's Don Gaiman. Uh, Don had produced a Pat Green record called Wave on Wave, and um, I called Don up, and he ended up producing the the Jason record, and we had a, a number one album on uh, on Arista Records, so that got me to Nashville, and I I, moved, I ended up starting to work here in 2004, 2005, and I, I moved here full time in 2008, 2009. Um, yeah, and I've been here ever since. I can keep going, or you can ask me questions. I, I can <laughs> you tell me what you what you want me to talk about because I can I can keep I can keep going down the road with this story. Hey, I think you're doing pretty well, Dave. Actually, <laughs> um, well, so so I I ended up managing Jason for about three years, and and like I said, we had a number one record, and that really I, I got him a publishing deal with. Then it was BMG. Um, Joe Galani was the head of Arista Records, and he was signed to the same label as. Brad Paisley and Carrie Underwood and Alan Jackson. And, um, and uh, so Bill Simmons was Brad Paisley's manager. I, I had met Bill Simmons earlier because he had managed a guy named Radney Foster. Radney was in a band called Foster and Lloyd. And Radney was, is a great songwriter here in town. And I, I, I started hanging out with all these people that I knew from the Hootie days in Nashville. And one thing led to another. And I just kind of got ingrained into the, the fabric of Nashville and I, I loved it. And, um, and I, I, I kind of, I tried to do it on my own for a while and realized that, um, that, you know, I, it's better in Nashville if you're around people that understand the system a little bit better and have been around and, and if in a, in a perfect world, if you can find somebody that's been here and had some success and you can kind of tutelage under them a little. And, uh, mm -hmm. so I ended up meeting, um, a uh, guy named Scott Simon, who was Tim McGraw's manager for 13 years, and Blake Chancey, who was, uh, he produced the Dixie Chicks' first three records and won a couple of Grammys. Blake Chancey's father was a producer, is it, uh, for the Oak Ridge Boys, and he was a second-generation Nashvilleian, and um, he, he'd worked with Waylon Jennings and all these people. So uh, all of a sudden, I'm hanging out with Blake and Scott, and they asked me to come work with them. 
And I did. And we, we had a management company together with Scott and we managed a couple of things and didn't really work out the way I was hoping it would, but it was a good, great relationship. I got to meet a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Then I ended up working with um, a company called Average Joe's, a uh, artist named Colt Ford. And we had a, a number, I ended up being the president of that management company. And at one point I woke up and I had 11 artists that were under my umbrella and and um, and for some somehow some way I, I I had moved to Nashville to to manage country acts and all of a sudden I'm managing hip hop acts these country rap acts and I was right. like man I I really like these guys but that's not why I moved to Nashville like I I wanted I wanted to be in country music and so I left and um, started my own management company and and uh, it just it, again, it just never really worked. I, I had a couple of acts. I, I managed a guy named Bo Bice, who was on American Idol. I managed Craig Wayne Boyd, who won The Voice in 2014. Um, so I, I'd had a, a few little things here and there, but then um, I really started making my way over into distribution and, um, and running a label. And about a year and a half ago, I ended up starting this company called Veer. Uh, Veer Music Company, which has uh, distribution through uh, the Warner Music Group's ADA. Um, right. And I had been with a couple of other distributors in the past, and I, I knew the things that didn't work, and I knew what I was hoping to have as a support system from a, from a distributor. And it turns mm -hmm. out the team at ADA was exactly what I was, what I was hoping to get. I actually had um, the guy that's the label manager for ADA, was the college marketing rep at the University of South Carolina when I was managing Hootie. So he had stayed in the Warner Music System for 25 years. And today he's, his name's Robert Turner. Today he's the, he's the label manager for ADA. So we are 25 years later, still working together. And um, we started that company a year and a half ago. Today we have, I can, I can happily say that for the first time in 30 years, I am management free. <laughs> I, I'm a recovering manager and uh, I'm 100% I'm focused on running a label and we've signed over 20 acts now. We're, we're multi-genre. We've put out about a hundred singles through the system, um, starting to have some success, starting to grow the label exactly the way we were hoping to. I just signed an artist named David Nail. David um, was a major label act that had a few number ones in country music and he's got over half a billion streams, he's got more than 500 million streams. Um, signed an artist, uh, an Asian American pop artist, sad girl pop uh, artist named Trace from LA who was signed to Ultra Records at one time. She's got over 100 million streams. Um, so we're, we're, we're based in Franklin, as you said, which is a suburb of Nashville for those of you that aren't familiar with it. And, uh, and I like to say that we're, we're in the Nashville community, but we're not a country label. We're, we're a multi-genre label. Um, but I do have a bunch of country artists on our, on our roster and I'm, I'm really, I'm really happy with the way that things are going. You mentioned that you're, you're out of the management a hundred percent and you're into a label now. How many of these acts come to you without management that you almost have to start doing it for them? Well, um, quite a few, but it's not. It's not a, it's not a, like a, a burden because that's, uh, I, I tell everybody our, our label is, is uh, very centric and very heavy on management. We, we are a record label that's, that's run from a manager's perspective. So um, I think it's actually an advantage to artists that come to us that if they have management, great, I work with the managers, but if they don't uh, from a, from a management perspective, that that's how I set up all of our, all the marketing and the, for the releases for our label is thinking about it the way. So brand partnerships is something that we work really hard with uh, marketing their tours and working with their publicists to make sure we get all of the, uh, the right pieces of the puzzle to, uh, to, to, to market and, um, and just really always thinking about like, what's the next step? Like what, how, how, how do we take what we have in front of us and move it down the, the football, you know, the field a little bit? How do we matriculate down the field? I'm always, I'm always thinking about that. And that's just from my management experience. Um, but it, it's, you know, a, a lot, a lot of what we do is uh, again, is setting up records from a management perspective. You're, you're a label services company. You use ADA and I'm, 
explaining this, I, I guess, and then you can clear it up too, for the people listening, trying to figure out the difference between, for example, you and DistroKid. You know, DistroKid just gets the music onto all the DSPs, Spotify, Apple, et cetera. You're using ADA to do that on your behalf. And then you are the label services company. Can you explain what label services are and specifically what you guys do and how are you different? What would you say the different thing is between you and Equity or Symphonic or Empire or United Masters, some of those other sort of also label services companies? Man, I, I'm really glad you asked those questions. There's, there's a handful of questions in there and I, I can answer every one of them. So thank you for, for, for those questions. I will say, um, uh, first of all, I, I like to describe our label as a marketing company that does distribution. We, we are a label, but um, it, it, this, this to answer your question, what separates us from so many of the other companies, I'll start first with the distro kids and the CD babies and the tune cores. The, uh, I call those the, the, the URL distributors because basically you click on a URL, you upload your music, and then off it goes. And you get, a, you get one chance to fill out a three or four sentence description of your song. And then and, and you, you, you upload the metadata and you hope that the metadata is translated properly so that, um, so that the, the proper writers are credited, the proper producers are credited. And if there's any information about producers or um, copyright or, or publishing information, you hope that that information is translated properly. Because if it's not, you're going to have a hard time getting anybody back to answer an email within three to four weeks after the music being released. Um, so that's, that's one, that's one difference. The, the other difference between the empires and the symphonics and things of that nature. So, so first of all, we have distribution through a major distributor, which is the ADA, which is owned by the Warner music group. Um, secondly, when we, when we take on a new artist, we, we, from my 30 years of management, uh, whenever I would, I would meet with a, an, an artist for the first time um, to begin a management career with them, we always started with an onboarding meeting. And the onboarding meeting basically was a deep dive on all aspects of their career. So, uh, you know, merchandise, websites, uh, social media, touring, writing, publishing, finances, brand partnerships, sponsorship uh, acquisitions, and relevancy, uh, target audience. I would go over all of these aspects of their career. Um, so when we take on a new client from with from our label, we do the same thing. Um, but when I was when I was managing that that meeting would last about a day to a day and a half. Today those meetings last about two to three hours, based on how much an artist has going on. Then we take all that information, and then from that all the everything that we are able to pull from the artist and management we then build out a marketing campaign for the releases that comes complete with a timeline. Uh, we like to release our singles in four to six week increments to properly trip the algorithms with the DSPs. I can explain that a little bit. Um, but uh, we, we always give our recommendations for the order of the songs, uh, hard releases versus soft releases. So we, we take this marketing campaign, we give it to the artist, and from that, we, we also take that marketing campaign and give it to our label manager. Um, then once that, once that um, marketing campaign has been delivered and we're about to release the first single, we start a live Google Doc for each artist. And that Google Doc um, has the marketing drivers for each release. So uh, a, a marketing driver is, is something that is pertinent to your upcoming release. So maybe it's your tour schedule. Maybe it's uh, you have a significant advertising budget, say, you know, I don't know, $5,000 or $7,500. Maybe it's only $500, but whatever the case, you've got an advertising budget. Maybe you have a publicist on board. Maybe you've got three weeks of a tour of a run booked in the Southeast and, you know, in college markets or, or with NACA or something along those lines. You, you, but uh, maybe you've got a, a TikTok video that you had 30,000 views the first day you put it out and it had 3 million the next day. So you've got something going viral on one of your social media platforms. All of those are marketing drivers. We put that on the, on the Google Doc so that when our label manager is pitching to the DSPs, he's able to click on the Google Doc and he's able to spout out, you know, to read off that information so that when the, the editorial playlisters, when they hear this, they, they know that there's a reason to play this song other than, wow, it's a really good song. Like there's a lot of information back, a lot of marketing information to back up why a song should be uh, uh, added to a major editorial playlist 
or why they should consider it for various playlists, um, then we take that, that information and we update it weekly. So we have a standing weekly call with every one of our artists. And I'll tell you one of the things that I hear quite often with people that come to us from Empire and 1RPM and Symphonic is that you know, they, they, the, the, they, they give great meetings and, and, they, and they, they initially set up everything properly. But then after that, there's not a lot of follow through. We, we meet with our, with our clients on a weekly basis. We update those marketing drivers on a weekly basis. We have that information in front of the DSPs on a weekly basis. So we are always able to feed the most pertinent and relevant information and keep the momentum going with each release for every single that we, that we put out. Finally, what separates us from everybody else is because we are owned by the Warner Music Group and because I have a relationship with Atlantic Records out of New York and with Warner Brothers in Nashville, um, I have it baked into our deals that if something performs really well and there's no magic number, it's not like it's like everybody involved kind of knows when something's starting to pop. Um, but if something does really well, we have, we have it baked into our deal that we can upstream to one of the major labels if, if we want to. Um, if you are on any distributor that is not affiliated with a major label, the reward for success is a big fat legal bill to get out of your deal and then move over to one of the majors. And then, then you start fighting over who gets those songs that you've already released and the old distributor wants to keep them, but the new distributor wants to take them with them. If you sign a, if, if we upstream you to the, within the Warner music group, then I let you take all that with you. And, and it, it's a seamless transition from us to, to, to the major. That's something that, as again, as a manager, that's something that I wanted to make sure that um, I was able to offer to the artists that we signed with, because my goal was for an artist to be successful. Like I, I don't, I, I don't want to just lay claim to an act. I don't, I don't want to sign them and then put them away and then go sign a bunch of other people and put them away. I want to sign it, work it, have success with it, move it on. And then ideally, you know, somebody takes me with them. Like ideally somebody says, man, I, I really like working with Veer. I, I love the marketing that they do. I love the A&R that they do. I, I love that they, they take my calls every week. I, I don't have to worry about being scheduled. Like I know I can put my records out when I want to put them out. I want to, I want, I want Warner brothers to do radio for me. I or I want Atlantic records to do radio for me. So let's do a joint venture where it's a 50, 50 joint venture where I, I can continue helping with the marketing and the setup and the A&R and all that brand partnerships, whatever, what have you. Um, but again, if it, if we don't do a joint venture, I'm fine with letting the artist move on. That's, that's my goal. And I did hear an uh, interview that then you guys get, you know, there's something in it for you because you did all this artist development. So there's an override for Veer. Uh, for, for the records that we have released. Yes. Okay. Um, so it, 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 I, I tell everybody this and it's kind of my, my partners would get really mad if they heard me say this on a podcast, but it's, I tell everybody that I meet, so it's okay. Um, if we do like a six song deal and we're four songs into the six song deal and you come to me and say, Hey, Warner brothers would like to move this over. I, I can, I, and they want to take my remaining two songs. Well, what good is it going to do me to say, no, you have to put out two more songs with me before you can go on with the rest of your life. Like that, that makes no sense because then I got, I got that band and that manager and that booking agent talking crap about me in this community of people, as opposed to them saying, man, I went to Rusty and asked him if I could get out of my deal and move it up. And, and he let me go. Like that's, that's what I want. I want people to say how easy it is to work with us. I want people to say, man, they, they helped me achieve all of my goals and they helped me get there. And when it was time to move on, they, they were, they were awesome about letting me go. We do let them go. However, the songs that we put out, the songs that we that help them get there, yes, we we will get paid for those, and we will get an override for those. Um, it's not exorbitant, and they're not selling the farm, but they're going to. Uh, if if we help them achieve that success, we will participate in the songs that we help that help get help get them to where they are. And from the art from the artist perspective, assuming they cut a traditional record company deal at that point, that override is really just going to come out of that artist's royalty anyway. So, um, or, so it's, I mean, it's, it's, you know it doesn't matter to the label, you know, that, that, 
that remains to be seen because there that part of it is open for negotiation. Um, you may have some situations where the label wants to come in, and, and, and again, it all depends on the artist, like and what's happening. If it's a if it's an if it's an artist that is completely blowing up, and is just is going you know bonkers, uh, I, I don't know I don't know what kind of deal that that the artist or the that the label is going to make. Uh, but I, I, I leave that open to negotiation. So it could come out of the, the, the artist side or it could come from the label. Um, that is, that is, that is on a per record per artist basis. I, I don't have, because not every situation fits, not, not every deal fits every artist. So I, I want to make sure I wanted to leave room for negotiation and, and leave room for flexibility so that depending on each artist situation, they're going to have a, a different set of circumstances surrounding their particular situation. So I wanted to make sure that I left some room to, to maneuver for each of those artists. And it, to be clear, which we haven't even stated that if an artist cuts a deal with you for whatever, six songs, eight songs, um, you're acting as a distributor basically through via ADA, but the artist still owns those songs. They own those original sound recordings. So that's one thing we haven't even, talked about about the fact that the artist still owns something they aren't giving you that asset to do whatever you like forever so so say um i manage an artist and we we cut a deal for you and it's six songs um does that deal your your ada is obviously getting a fee and, and you're getting maybe whatever percentage it is and let's say it's from streaming revenue how long is that deal going to last? Is that going to be a five year, a 10 year, seven year, 15? So, so there's a, uh, I still need to answer one of your other questions. You asked about Sorry. services. No, but that's, that, that, this ties into that. So, so my deals, I, I like to say that I feel like my deals are the most fair deals in Nashville, again, from a management perspective. Um, so I do three year terms on the songs, not the artist. So if, uh, from the date that the song is released, we that song is in our system for three years from the day that the record's released. I have then a uh, three-month exclusivity on the artist from the date of the last song being released. And the only reason a lot of people do 18 months or three years or whatever exclusivity, the reason that I do three months is because if I've, I've said that if we upstream within the Warner Music Group, they can go seamlessly well, if Universal Records or Sony Records calls them, I'm not going to stop the deal because it's not Warner, the Warner Music Group. But I do want a chance to, I want to have a seat at the table. I, I want to be able to have a conversation with that band or that artist about, you know, maybe we can match it or maybe maybe the, somebody can, within the Warner Music team would like to to have the opportunity to discuss. So I feel, I feel like three months gives us adequate time to have a conversation with somebody. So to answer your question, we do three-year terms on the songs. They stay within, they stay in, and honestly, from a manager's perspective, why wouldn't you want them under the ADA umbrella or under the Warner Music umbrella? Um, they're going to get monetized at a higher rate, and there's going to be more aggressive pitching and playlisting going on within the Warner Music system than there is practically anywhere else. So it makes sense to keep them there. Um, but then and the, the, the three-month exclusivity, and then, yes, we do, we do percentages. So basically, it, this ends up being about a 70-30 split. Uh, between ADA and Veer, it's about, we get about 30% between the two of us. And then the artist keeps 70%. And yes, they retain 100% ownership of the masters under this agreement. So that if, mm -hmm. if for whatever reason, they decide they want to take these records anywhere and do anything that they, they or if they want to approve a sync, or if they want to, if they want to do a brand partnership with somebody and they want to use a song, they don't have to get permission from us to do that. That's 100% on the, on the artist. And I, I, again, I wanted that purposefully. I baked that into the deal purposefully. And I, I, I just did not feel it was appropriate because we don't, we're not putting up any money. The artist is, is in control of the spin, um, which means conversely that the artists make money from the very first dollar of income. They're, they're, they're making money from, from dollar one that comes in the door. There's no recouping. Um, and then the other thing about label services that you asked about, uh, part of what we offer to our clients is when we do our onboarding meeting and we find out what, what they have going on in their career, um, uh, maybe we feel like when they, after, after meeting with them, that we, we feel that they need a publicist or that they need a social media manager, but they don't have one. 
but they've got a little budget for it. And, but you know, again, every artist is at a different place. Some artists are, have been on a major label and now they're on their way down and all they want to do is put out music so they can continue to tour. Other artists are growing and they're starting, they're just starting their, their climb. And um, so that artist may be a little more aggressive with their social media. They may be doing more, uh, they may be participating on the various platforms a little more aggressively than the older artist that doesn't care so much. But like the older artist you're going to find is, is going to be heavy on Facebook, heavy on Twitter, maybe Instagram, where the new artists are going to be participating heavy with, with TikTok and, um, and whatever flavor of the month is coming along from a social media perspective. So uh, some artists are going to uh, be completely comfortable with posting all their social media content themselves. Other artists, they, they, they don't, they don't do any of it. They, they, they don't provide the content. They, they don't schedule the posting. They don't know when to post it. So they're going to need a social media manager. That's kind of heavy handed that comes in and does a lot more for them. So based on learning these things in our onboarding meeting, we can make recommendations for what type of social manager they may need. Maybe it's a, a $20 an hour, social media manager. Maybe it's a $500 a month social media manager. Maybe it's a $5,000 a month. I mean, there's, there's companies like Gorilla and Marbaloo here in Nashville that, that work with big name artists um, that are, that, that do everything and they do brand partnerships and they help with all aspects of their, of their digital marketing. Uh, and then there's others, there's others that are kind of in the middle, like they, they might charge a thousand dollars a month and they schedule the posting and they, they help them oversee like a pre-save campaign or something along those lines. That's a thousand bucks a month. Whatever the stage is that we, that we recommend, we manage that as it pertains to their releases. We, we work with the social media team. We will charge a fee for that. So we'll charge, usually it's a 20% fee on top of the retainer. So if it was a thousand dollar a month, uh, social media manager, the invoice to the artist would be a thousand dollars from the from the social media manager and two hundred dollars from us. So so we make money from a label services perspective on like that, and, and there's no contract with that. It's it's very open ended. If they go two or three months and decide they want to stop, that's it. There's no more money to pay. Um, and if they decide they want to extend the relationship with the social media manager beyond the releases, that they, they can stop paying us. It's only as it pertains to the releases of the music. Uh, and then the same with a, with, a pub, with a publicist or the same with a videographer or a photographer or any type of, of content creator, uh, somebody that creates videos for the, for the art, whatever. If we, because I've got guys, I've, I've got a guy that I, I like to say is the best kept secret in Nashville. Um, he'll do a, he'll shoot a $5,000 video for $1,500 and it looks amazing. He'll do a $3,000 video uh, photo shoot for 500 bucks. So I'm saving the artist money because I'm not going after, I've got people that deliver great product, but, and they're saving thousands of dollars. And we charge, you know, on a $500 photo shoot, we, we set it up. We, we help pick the location. We help get the clearances for people for the video shoots. We help with the event day insurance. We help with the catering. We help with the hair and makeup. We do all of that. And I only charge a 20% fee for doing that of whatever the budget is for that particular video shoot. So the type of artist you need then is, is an artist who does have some money behind them. Since you're not giving advances and you're obviously taking from some streaming income, but that may be spotty. So uh, through the services, you're, you're taking a fee for that. Um, it, the perfect artist for you has some sort of you know, either savings or some sort of backing where they can spend some money every month to get to that next level? Uh, we put out records with people that are heavily funded and invested. We put out records with people that have a little bit of money saved up themselves. And we put out records with no budget whatsoever. So um, uh, <coughs> again, back to the onboarding meeting, we find out all this information in, in our onboarding and we'll make our recommendations based on what their financial capabilities are or what they tell us they want to do. Um, I've, I've signed artists that are completely developmental, that we just love the music and we think that it needs to be heard. And we, we look at their work ethic. We, we like what they do. We, we like the way they write. We like the, the recordings. We think that they're hustlers and they're go-getters and they're savvy with their social media. We'll, we'll sign an act like that because we know that they'll, 
take the help that we give them and grow their career from that. But then we, we also take artists that, you know, they, they may say, Hey man, I've got, I've got $5,000 total and I want to put out five songs. So, you know, how, how are we going to spread that across five releases? And, uh, and there's a, there's different strategies involved, but we may say, you know what, we want to do a lot of social media content. We want to try to pull in a brand partner to help offset some of the digital advertising. We can get some social media help from a pre-safe campaign. Then we'll utilize the brand partner for that. Um, so it may be that you don't need to spend any money on digital advertising. You want to do a 100% social media campaign and maybe spend a little bit of uh, money for, from Facebook and Google ads just for your tour support. So you might spend $25 or $50 a show from touring, but talk about your single being involved. So, you know, we can do it on a shoestring budget. I mean, sure, I would love to do it. I, I've got one artist that we had an $80,000 spend that he it came with an investor. And, um, and he, he had us draw up a marketing campaign and the investor approved it. And we released seven songs on an $80,000 budget. So I would, I would love to do that with everybody, but no, we don't have to. And, and I'm very cognizant of artists that don't have a lot of money. And, and I'm not, I, I will always try to maximize what we can do financially uh, based on their level of financial support. I, I don't want to, I would never present a marketing campaign to somebody that simply didn't have the money. Um, I like to think that we can build things up and they can start seeing revenue come in from either touring sponsorships or streaming uh, or syncs. Uh, um, you know, maybe there's a, a way that they could, that they could uh, earn some extra income from, from sync placement. Um, but we, we try to, to, for those artists, we do everything we can to increase their presence uh, in multiple areas for, of the business, like I said, from touring or publishing or sync or, or brand partnerships. Do you feel that playlisting alone is a marketing plan? Uh, I think it's probably the worst advice anybody could ever give somebody. If you're going <laughs> explain, to, explain that because a lot of people think that's, that's it. So explain that. Well, if you're, if you're sitting back saying um, I spoke to somebody at Apple or I spoke to somebody at Spotify and they promised to add me to this, to this, you know, 800,000 follower playlist and you put all your eggs in that basket. And then for some reason that week, your single comes out, you happen to be up against, you know, five major label releases that came out that, that week. And now all of a sudden that spot that somebody got drunk with you at a bar and promised you that they would give you goes away because they didn't realize you were going to be releasing it on the same day as the five major labels. Now, all of a sudden you've got a single out and you don't, you haven't done anything else because you thought you were going to, you put all your eggs in that playlisting basket and then it never happens. You sit around looking for weeks, like, well, are they going to add it this week? Are they going to add it this week? And then they never add it. Now all of a sudden, you know, you, you sat around for four or five or six weeks waiting for it to be added to a playlist and it never gets added. Um, I, I just, I never, I, I never look at playlisting as a marketing strategy because it is so out of your control. I, I again, this is the manager in me talking, and this is where I say, you know, I, I, I put records out from a management perspective. Take care of the things you can control. You can control your pre-save campaign. You can control your digital advertising budget. You can control releasing a video and promoting it via YouTube. There's a lot of things that you can control so that you give the playlisters every opportunity to want to add your song. But if they don't add it, you still got touring. You still got brand partnerships. You still got TV syncs. You still got a little bit of budget for advertising. You can still uh, have an upward trajectory with your career without having to focus 100% on playlisting. Look, playlisting will come if you do all these other things properly. If you, if you keep, if you keep playing the game, the way you're supposed to play, play, uh, play it, eventually playlisting will come. Um, and if it doesn't, you know, it's, it's, again, it's no different. Think, think about playlisting today, the way that people used to think about radio, you know, you, you could, you could release a song and hope that your radio team at your record label had a great relationship with the radio programmers and the music directors at radio stations. But even if they had a great, if they even if they had a great relationship, that doesn't guarantee that they're going to add a particular song. Again, you got to look at what's happening around you. You got to look at, at records that are that are rising and records that are falling, and and how long they've been in on a playlist, and is it continuing to gain momentum or is it on its way down? You just never know what the landscape is going to be on the week that you release your music. 
So you cannot focus on playlisting guarantees from, from DSPs. It's just not a, it's not a smart way to do your business. No. And it's, and it's so hard anyway, because even if you do get on a, a human curated playlist, that doesn't ne- necessarily mean you're going to get on any algorithmic playlists and vice versa. So, uh, and then there are obviously third party playlists and that, that's a whole game as well. We, so, yeah, we tell, playlists- we tell- we t- I'm sorry to cut you off. We tell all of our artists to stay away from third-party promotion companies. Um, I, I would rather put it in the hand. Again, we're, we're with the Warner Music Group. This is not, I, I like to tell people, this isn't a hobby. Like, this is a profession. This is what we do for a living. And if you're, if you're, if you're taking a chance with third-party promotion companies, you don't know if those people have paid relationships and if they're going to go get fake streams and the DSPs have gotten really smart about figuring out if you're getting streams that are paid for or not. And if they find that you're part of uh, today's version of payola, if they find out that you're a part of that, then they'll strike you from their, from the DSP and you, you could be eliminated from uh, the chance to, to prove yourself down the road. And if you get, if you get taken off Spotify, it could take you years to get back on if ever. Well, I think we need to wrap it up. So uh, hopefully it's not years before you come back to our show. Man, I, again, I love what you, uh, I love what you talked about with, with interns. I, I, I have, I have, uh, I've made a career out of, I, I like to say one of my favorite interns of all time is uh, a girl named Lynn Oliver. Lynn runs Riverhouse Artist. Riverhouse Artist is responsible for Luke Combs and his career and today, Lynn is an incredibly successful executive in Nashville, but she was my very first intern in Hootie World when she was 18 years old and a freshman at the University of South Carolina. She went on mm. to work for BMI and was the day-to-day manager for Zach Brown for several years and then ended up signing Luke Combs when the song Hurricane blew up. And today she's running his empire. And... Um, Man, internships are, are just a great way to get started in the business. And I saw that you had written that article on that. So I, I would love to come back. I also teach at a university. I teach at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. And I'm starting an adjunct position at Belmont this year. So anytime you want to talk about teaching students or the music industry or labels or management, I would love to come back anytime. Well, hang out great. one sec. We're going to let us uh, do our, our closing. Then I just have one quick, quick question for you off. You got it. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Yes. Yeah. So at the end of every show, Dr. Marconi, what do we say? Avida Stein. That's right. At the end of every show, we don't say hello. We say, I wish you didn't like John Mayer or pretend to care about what I say so much. Wish you never met your friends and heard from them. They said, don't mess this up. Wish you never told my mom that boy I saw in Side of the city, how'd you make this so hard? A loaded gun, take me out of my misery and curse your dark hair and green eyes. You never planned on being mine. You can imagine.
just admit